The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. I had a war chest of about three and a half million dollars. Mark Martin is strapping into his trolley. Based on what we had going on, I had enough money to do it for two years. Mark Martin from Batesville. Bill France Jr. gave me and Mark Martin an application to the 1988 Daytona 500. And not enough can be said for these guys that built this team from the ground up in two years. But if I didn't win a race, if I had, didn't show a blue sky to, to potential sponsors that wanted to get on board, there was an end in sight to my, uh, to my NASCAR career. The Motor Racing Network presents the many hats of Jack Roush. Mark Martin drives up high out of turn number four, comes out of the corner, and every person in this grandstand is cheering him on. He comes down, and he will win the AC Delco 500. It has been a long, hard road for Mark Martin. I butted head. I mean, I had butted heads with Jack Roush, but I butted head with Jack a lot early in the years, but we made it and we did it together. Jeff Burton wins at Daytona. He takes the 42nd Pepsi 400. Everything that I do in my racing and, and uh, you know, when my son's racing and stuff, I always, one of the decisions I'm making, I always go through my mind, what would, you know, what would Jack do? Carl Edwards is a first-time winner in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. They did not hold one thing back from me. We gave it the best effort, and I think that's very noble, and I'm honored to be associated with him. From the Motor Racing Network Studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Woody Kane. Welcome to MRN Presents, The Many Hats of Jack Roush. I'm Woody Kane. In this 10-week journey, we'll discuss the life and career of Jack Roush, who'll be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in January, an honor that's based on a career that continues today in the NASCAR Cup Series and NASCAR Xfinity Series with Roush Fenway Racing. Jack Roush's drive to succeed has always been apparent, whether it was finding his next degree in higher education or learning how to make a pass in drag racing faster than the competitor next to him. Competition and the ability to build things is what Jack Roush lives for. In 1987, Ford Motor Company and Jack Roush formed a partnership. The Blue Oval wanted to be more competitive in NASCAR, and Roush was intrigued by the predominantly southern sport. But uh, Ford decided that by, by 87, in 86 or 87, that they wanted to increase the size of their footprint in NASCAR. And so they asked me if I'd start a team if they gave me some, uh, some seed corn. And I had some seed corn of my own. And, and uh, Strove Brewing Company in Detroit was ready to sponsor a car if I'd build it. And so uh, with Ford's encouragement and with uh, uh, Strove Brewery Company's support, we started a, a program that went stock car racing at, uh, in 1988. An offer he couldn't refuse. A dream turned reality. I was 46 years old. I uh, I drag raced for a total of 10 years, and I, at that time I had been road racing for uh, for five, and uh, I I was thought I was near the end of my career. I I I stopped drag racing and uh, and started my engineering business in '76 in order to uh, to to get that going and make that have that make sense. And so then they got me involved with uh, the pace car, and they got me involved with the parts system, and then they got me involved by making me an offer I couldn't refuse to, to feel a NASCAR car. One of Roush's biggest obstacles was finding a driver. A Yankee all his life, Roush didn't know many people in NASCAR, but there were a few. First with Ford's factory team, the Wood Brothers. That relationship started way back in 1976 when he attended one of the most historic races in NASCAR history, the 1976 Daytona 500. Eddie Wood explains. Actually, Jack was a guest of ours um, 
1976 at the Daytona 500 when Pearson and Petty ran. Richard Petty goes back in front. They both spin. They're in the wall. Petty is sliding, slamming into the wall. David Pearson moving down through as they come to the stripe. The winner is car number 21. He was in our pits with us. So we'd always been friends. You know, Jack at that time was a was a drag racer mostly and, and was getting into sports cars too. And um, But we'd always been friends from, from day one. You know, it's always been that way. Jack's next phone call was to a former 1983 championship crew chief, Gary Nelson, who worked for Bobby Allison. So the first guy I went to was, was Gary Nelson. I don't know how I found him, but uh, Leonard Wood may have recommended I talk to Gary. But I talked to Gary Nelson, and he says, well, talk to Bobby Allison. If you're looking for a driver, he'd be the best driver that's out there. He could help you build a team. And I talked to Bobby, and Bobby was with the Stavola brothers from up north, and he was near the end of his career and said he didn't want to make a change. At least he, uh, my suspicion was he didn't want to go with an unknown, another road racer or drag race that was trying to break into NASCAR. And so I asked him uh, who he thought should drive the car, and, uh, and he, he talked to, uh, he says, well, Mark Martin is, uh, is capable, and he's out there, and he's, uh, he's been there, and he's, he's seen some. And he says, I think if you put him in good stuff, he could do the job. As any good car owner would do, Jack sought the hottest talent on the market, as Mark Martin describes. Jack talked to everybody who would have been the logical first choices. Bobby Allison said, why don't you get Mark Martin to drive their car, Jeff Bodine, a few others. And when all the preferable drivers got weeded out, they, they got down, the list got down to me. So uh, he finally called me. Steve told me he was going to call me for three months. And uh, finally he called me and asked me to come up there. And I talked to Mark after I talked to, to three, three other guys whose names I'm not going to mention. And the other guys were all interested in how much money they would make and how many days they had to, to do personal services. And Mark was interested in how many tires I would buy and uh, how much we would test and, uh, and wh who would work on the car. I had, a, I had seed corn, I had some money out of my engineering business, and I had some, my sponsor money from Ford and my sponsor money from Stroh. I had $5 million for the first year, and I figured that I could parlay that into some additional sponsorship and some prize money, and I could go for two years with that. And uh, when Mark and I sat and talked, I saw, talked to Mark after I talked to the other fellows that, uh, that, that I was interested in or that I also had recommendations for. And uh, Mark and I talked about the tires because what I told him about the tires, there's no limit on tires. There's no limit on how many tires you could buy for a race. And I said, there's no limit on how many tires I can, I can buy and wonder how much we could test. I said, well, as much as we can get ready to test, we can test. Their conversation was about building for the future. A young Mark Martin trying to jumpstart his career in NASCAR, as was Roush. The two finally came to the realization that they belonged together, but were so excited to get started they never agreed to terms on Mark's compensation. We talked for probably two, two and a half hours, and I was driving away from the meeting place. We'd met in Greensboro at a Holiday Inn in a conference room, and I uh, was driving away, and I said, you know, we forgot to talk about how much money Mark was going to get paid. He, about the same time he was driving home and had the same determination. When we got done, he said, you know, he told me all that stuff, and he says, I would like to, uh, I'd like to have you drive my car. And I says, well, I'll do it. And I stood up, and I shook his hand, and I got lightheaded and almost, I, I mean, I remember feeling lightheaded. And uh, 
and I left there, and I never, ever, never asked him what I was going to get paid or if I was going to get paid. You know, that was not on my, I didn't got, you know, that, that wasn't important to me. But uh, he wasn't interested in uh, what his short-term gain was. He was interested in building for the future, as, as, I, as was I. And I was willing to bring everything that I had and everything I could afford and everything I could do to support it, and he did the same, and it made a great partnership for 18 years. Now that Jack Roush had found his driver of the future and finally figured out his pay, he needed to build a team around him. In 1987, crew chief Robin Pemberton was working for Neil Bonnet. He had previously worked for drivers like Richard Petty in 1983, Bobby Allison in 85, and Morgan Shepard in 86. I was at home mowing the yard, and the phone rings, and Lisa sticks her head out and says, out the door, my wife Lisa, says, uh, phone's for you. I said, no, I'm not answering the phone. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not doing anything. Uh, you know, I just want to mow the yard. I mean, I was so frustrated. It was a it was a mower that was self-propelled, and I wouldn't turn it on. I pushed that thing all day long just to work out my frustrations. And she come back uh, out the door a couple minutes later, said, "This guy really wants to talk to you." I said, "No, just tell him, call me some other time." She goes back in. She calls, comes back out, and she said, "Well, he's a he's a friend of Paul Giltman, your friend, and he says his name is Jack Roush." And you, you may know him. I shut the mower off and ran inside and answered the phone. And he said, you know, hey, I'm putting some, I want to put some stuff together. And, and uh, you know, you come recommended uh, to talk to about a new team. And we set up a meeting to, to talk about it. The race team was started from scratch on a plot of land near Liberty, North Carolina. Pemberton and his buddy Steve Meal, the new general manager, got to work. My friend uh, Steve Meal. You know, he was going to be the general manager. I was going to be the crew chief. So the team wound up being assembled over in Liberty, North Carolina. You know, got some land and a, and a building over there, and it was literally an empty warehouse. So we built everything. We built the bathrooms. We plumbed it. We wired it. We put, you know, air systems in it, and, and you only had maybe four or five guys at the time. Roush Racing had plans to run between 12 and 15 races in 1988. While already behind on building race cars and a shop, Roush found some additional funding. We heard it during the media tour that we were going to go run all the races in 88. And we were, we were stunned because when, when that came down, we literally only had two race cars. One of them was for Daytona, and one of them was for Rockingham, and that was it. So it was, it was quite the chore for all of us. Everybody pulled together and did a great job on at least getting it off the ground. Mark Martin didn't want to set goals for the team, due in part to having realistic expectations. They were just going to do the best with what they had. I just didn't like a goal thing. I never understood how you could set a goal, then if you don't reach it but you do really good, you're disappointed? I mean, I don't understand that, you know. I mean, you know, you could say we need to. We need to win a race or we need to make the top ten in points or whatever. But I just, I, I never was a goal guy. My, I didn't need a goal. Just give me the tools and let me go to work and let me make it happen. And that's what Roush did. However, the team struggled out of the gate during the 1988 season, 
having overheating issues in the season-opening Daytona 500. Back at Daytona International Speedway, one car smoking heavily down the back straightaway. It's Martin Martin coming off the banking. A big cloud of smoke came out of the back end of the car. He has slowed and moved down to the inside of the race. We overheated. The, the thing just acted like it wanted to run warm from the very start of the race. Uh, it got up to about 250 and, and started pushing water, so I think it's all over. It's not a great way to start with this new team. Well, you know, I, all I can say is I'm sorry for the Strolite team, Jack Roush, and all the guys. You know, we'll just have to go back and try to win the race at Richmond. Then they posted a sixth-place finish at Darlington Raceway in Week 5, a track that eventually became one of Martin's best. The following week at Bristol, the team posted a season-high second-place finish. And we have Mark Martin. Mark, uh, second-place run today. Great run for the Strolite Ford. Well, you know, I just, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm glad for, for the Stroh's people. I'm real glad for Jack Roush and Steve Mule and Robin and everybody that works in that shop back there in Liberty. This was, you know, this was, this was what it's all about, and this is what their hard work's all about. But they couldn't manage a win in their first season together. In 1989, Roush Racing improved, scoring eight top tens in their first 11 races. The team was leading laps and felt confident that a win was in sight. Week after week, Martin fielded questions about closing out races. Well, we had run second five times, and every single week when the press would run up to me, you know, when you gonna win? And it got real irritating because I was, we were already frustrated, you know, because we run second all the time, you know? And then they gonna ask you, when you gonna win? It was just, and it was same every week, every week. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> You know, but with three weeks to go in the season, it finally happened. Less than half a mile to go to victory lane for Mark Martin. Mark Martin drives up high out of turn number four, comes out of the corner, and every person in this grandstand is cheering him on. He comes down and he will win the AC Delco 500. It has been a long, hard road for Mark Martin, but he will go to victory lane. Let's go to Dick Brooks. Well, Steve Mill, I had him kind of cornered here. Jack Ralph was up on top of their, uh, way up on top of their all their tools and stuff. They've all gone to the top. They're standing up there hugging and under, jumping around. Uh, Steve's just jumped down. Steve, this has got to be a happy day. Oh, it just took so long, Dick. You know, we've been real close, screwed up, trying to do a conservative and didn't want Russ to get by. He got by. We thought it was over. Mark drove it back to the front. Won a first turn race. We're thrilled to death. How could you all be so calm until the last minute or two? We weren't calm. <laughs> And look, Barney, here on Pit Road, it's so nice. All the crews are coming out now to congratulate Mark Martin. He's a popular guy in the garage area. If not for that win at Rockingham in 89, Jack Roush says they wouldn't have survived. You know, we had a number of people in the wings that wanted to talk to us about sponsorship, but we hadn't demonstrated we could win yet. And uh, the, the, when we won the race at Rockingham, the, 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 it was with great relief that Steve Meal and Robin Pemberton and Mark and I celebrated the uh, the win because that meant that we could stay. Uh, that I'm as almost certain to be able to get the additional support we made we needed to be able to stay in the business for the long term. The two went on a tear through the 90s, breaking records and collecting trophies as Roush began his Hall of Fame resume. Down to the inside of the racetrack, the Folgers Ford of Mark Martin now as the crowd stands up and cheers on the back stretch. Martin takes it clearly down the back stretch, back to turn three. Here's Mark Martin at the bottom of the speedway. The fans are on their feet cheering the young driver on as he comes down to take the checkered flag and win the Pontiac Excitement 400. They swing through the trioval and a second week in a row, victory lane will belong to Mark Martin. Join us next week as we'll pick up from there as we discuss the many hats Jack Roush wears. Until then, 
I'm Woody Kane. Have a great week. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The Many Hats of Jack Roush was written and produced by Rich Colbreth, Tyler Burnett, Alexa Henrian, and Brian Nelson. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. <laughs>